Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Detailed. I am honored and maybe just a tad bit intimidated to have the opportunity to chat today about the Moscone Convention Center project and probably some other things based on our pre-conversation with Patrick McClamey, FAIA, CEO Emeritus from HOK, Chairman of Building Smart International. Funny thing, when I sent Patrick over an email saying, send me a little info about you, a short bio because we could spend probably two podcasts just on this man's bio, um, and some info about the project, his response to the bio was, and I quote, 50-year career as an architect, founder of Building Smart International, <laughs> which, which truly made me laugh. I'm going to add a couple things to that bio. He recently published the book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, The People, Stories, and Strategies Behind HOK. And he co-hosts the podcast Build Smart with Mark LePage of, of Entree Architect and Gable Media. So in my mind, I can now say, because we both host a podcast produced by Gable Media, I can now tell everybody and brag that I work with Patrick McClamey. You know, I mean, I, I've got some serious street cred now. On this podcast... In general, we're chatting about the stories of buildings with a focus on kind of pulling back the curtain and talking about the challenges yes. and the problem solving that, you know, people, you know, oftentimes will go on a podcast or on the internet or whatever and look at my pretty building and all the pretty things. 
but they don't talk about the hard things that got them there that we, like we chatted before the podcast, I want somebody to walk away from this podcast. I want everybody to walk away from this podcast after you shared your wealth of knowledge of what went down on this project and go run to their desk and change something they're doing because you said, okay, here was the challenge. Here's how we fixed it and not be afraid to talk about those things. And you know, life is hard. Projects are hard. There's no such thing as a perfect project, but those challenges are where we really learn. We don't learn in the easy stuff. We, we learn in the problems. So give me a, you know, before we get into some specific questions, a general overview of the Moscone Center project, what it was all about and what you were trying to achieve. Yes, of course. I worked uh, at, at the HOK office uh, in San Francisco for three years after I joined HOK. They opened a branch in San Francisco and lucky me, I was transferred there. I was still a designer. What I found was I was a very organized designer. I always wanted to make my deadlines. I always wanted to make a profit on the fee that I got and so on. And I gradually found that the rewards of being a project manager were very satisfying for me. And yet I could still participate in influencing design, although I was no longer the project designer. So as a new project manager, uh, I participated in a successful effort by HOK to win a big project from the city and county of San Francisco to design the new convention center for San Francisco. And for those of you who've been to San Francisco, it's a very attractive place. People like to go visit there. It's uh, scenic. There are good restaurants and good places to uh, go uh, look at the scenery and so on. And um, uh, it's a natural spot for people to have conventions because well, I get to go to the convention, and then after the convention, I can be a tourist. The, the city's old convention center was called Brooks Hall on the plaza in front of City Hall, which is a nice Beaux-Arts building. And it was underground. It was under the plaza, and it looked like a basement. It was a forest of columns. It was concrete, low ceilings. And the modern the, the needs of a modern convention this is not just people coming, but all the vendors that bring things for people to see and look at or maybe buy. If you've ever gone to any kind of a convention, there's usually a place for people to meet and then a great big room next door for people to go look at the new products or the new whiz-bang things that, that they can buy for their building or for their industry, whatever it is. And so uh, San Francisco needed a new convention center. But San Francisco is a pretty argumentative place. There's always factions. And uh, the city located a spot on the south side of Market, which is kind of the main street of town, that was uh, newly cleared by the redevelopment agency. And so the land was big enough. It was a 600 by 800 foot site, which is about the equivalent of six city blocks, all combined, no, no streets in the middle. Big site. Wow. And... It, within uh, two blocks of Market Street and close to all of restaurants and hotels and so on. And there was a group that said, well, wait, a, we don't want that in this, this side of town. We want a park. And another group said, well, we don't want a park. We want public housing. There was a lawsuit even before we got hired. The one thing I have to remind myself at times, we 
did this all under the overcast of a lawsuit and a strike. This is John Igo, at the time HOK's client for the Moscone Center in his role as the assistant to the San Francisco chief administrative officer. The populace of the city had voted that we could proceed with this project as long as it was undergrounded to the extent possible. Well, the lawsuit was about that we failed to meet that criteria. And so what they did was they they tried to attack us at the environmental impact report, and they tried to best to go through those documents and try to show where we were in violation of the edict from the electorate and also from the standpoint of the, the fact that we were not following the principles that were outlined in the EIS EIR. And so that was a pall cast over the project. They, they were totally against the development south of market, but they were funded by a fellow from the East Bay who had considerable financial resources himself. But basically it was, we, we don't want any development south of Market Street. And the solution to the lawsuit was a typically, I, I think it was a political solution that, that was looking for an architectural solution to match which was, well, okay, we can have a big giant convention center, but we don't want to see it. So let's put it underground like we did Brooks Hall. And let's fix it so that the top of it, the roof, could either become a park, which some people wanted, or future buildings could be placed up to three stories in height anywhere on the roof. Now, if any structural engineers are listening to this, you will know that if you have a variable load on your roof and you don't know what it is when you start out, you don't, you can't design for it. You have to design the entire roof as if it's going to be completely covered by three-story buildings. We even got to the point of, we had some trees that we wanted to put up there on the roof and we, we ended up getting how much is a tree weigh just to make sure we got the loads right. <laughs> so that led to two great design challenges. So we were told, Here's your brief. We want you to build the biggest convention center you can, but it has to be underground. You can use the entire block, right, sidewalk to sidewalk, 600 by 800 feet. And because it was underground, how deep? Well, at 20 feet, we hit the water table. So everything below the water table meant that for every foot we went down, the water pressure grew by 64 pounds. By the time we got down to 40 feet, uh, the water pressure was such that for every every foot we went down, we had another we had to add another six inches of the equivalent of concrete load to hold the building in the ground because the building, if you think about this, was like a boat in the ground with the groundwater trying to push that building back up out of the ground. Right. And so we had to ballast the boat to hold the boat down. I had never imagined that my high school physics course would come in handy. <laughs> We had a very eminent structural engineer who became a very good friend of mine, T.Y. Lin, Chinese-American, who is the inventor of the, anybody that's gone to any parking garage in the world knows that there are concrete, pre-stressed concrete tees that span long distances in parking garage. And those are Lin tees. Those those were designed by T.Y. Lin. 
T.Y. Lin was an engineer, teacher, authority in structural engineering, and a leader in the research and development of pre-stressed concrete. As a pioneering engineer, his scientific analysis, technological innovation, and visionary designs of pre-stressed concrete made today's long-span bridges and buildings possible. Lin T's are single T-section-shaped, precast, pre-stressed concrete beams that are most effective for long-span conditions such as parking structures, warehouses, plants, and the like. Pre-manufactured in a factory, T-systems also save time and money because they are ready for assembly as soon as they arrive on site. So as we began to design with Giovara, and I was there present, uh, we said, how can we make this not Brooks Hall, not just a forest of columns? How far can we span? And we came up with this idea in one meeting. How about an arch that would span 300 feet? That would be that would create a room 800 feet long and 300 feet wide, without any columns. And if we just pooch the height up a little bit above grade, we could get a row of clear story windows in, so that we could actually not only see the light, see if it was day or nighttime, but we could actually get a view of the city skyline. Well, that was exciting. And we drew this arch, and T.Y. Lin, who was, again, he was trained in China, he pulled a little pocket abacus out of his pocket, (laughs) and he calculated in a crude way with the abacus for a few minutes. His fingers were flying over this abacus, sliding these balls back and forth. And he looked up and grinned and said, I think we can do this. I think we can do this. We were thrilled. So we now had a way to span 300 feet and carry the load of unknown future buildings and parkland on top. And he did it by having these wonderful arches. Uh, These are big arches, five feet thick, with buttresses at both ends. And they were post-tensioned under the floor. What do I mean by post-tensioning? Well, we all know what pre-stress is. You stress a, 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 a wire, and then you pour concrete around it, and then you clip the wire so that it, it releases, and it, it compresses the concrete. Well, post-tensioning is the same thing, except it's after the fact. Think of a bow and arrow. A bow, and then a string, and if you tighten the string, the bow bows more. That string is the post-tensioning. When you put a string on a bow, the bow bows out more, and the distance between the two tips shortens. That puts the bow in tension and the string intention. That's what gives you force when you shoot an arrow. So it's an old idea, but I had never seen it used in a building with post-tensioning between the arches. So this was innovative on that level for sure. And uh, we ran conduit under the floor from one buttress to another, 300 feet. After the arches were constructed, which was, there's another whole challenge with that, we post-tensioned with big jacks. We post-tensioned by putting a cable through the conduit and applying force and until we had enough pressure that one of the buttresses actually moved. I'll never forget it that day. They were post-tensioning the first arch down 40 feet in the ground. No, no roof yet, just the arches. And Yeppa Larson, who was from Scandinavia, worked for T.Y. Lin. He was standing there looking and saying, gee, it should move, it should move. 
and all of a sudden, crack, it all moved at once, six inches. The, the, buttress, the buttress moved six inches and the top of the arch rose three inches, which was all calculated, but we didn't think it would go all at once. <laughs> and poor Yepa, <laughs> he must have jumped a foot in the air. But uh, that's what gave the arches the strength to carry future loads is that post-tensioning. So there were a series of pairs of arches that, that spanned this 300 feet and went 800 feet. So we got this grand room. At, the, at each end, we had to have a place for trucks to get down to deliver things to be shown and, and so on in the, in the hall. We had a big challenge with, if you think about thousands of people, 40 feet underground, it's an assembly occupancy. You've got to get those people out. So we had uh, had to devise, I think, very cleverly between each pair of arches, a grand staircase out. It was uphill, 40 feet up to grade. And uh, we also had uh, real challenges with, you know, the building was made of concrete, but we still had to have uh, smoke evacuation and uh, we had to pass a fire test and so on. There were great challenges with this. It was not only we as the architects and the structural engineers, but our best friends became the people that helped us with meeting the building codes and making sure the, the project was safe. Along the way, a wonderful thing happened. When we were first selected, the city had already selected the contractor who would become the construction manager. I had never worked with a contractor during design, but we were told in no uncertain terms by the city, we want you to work together on this because we think it'll take everybody's brains working together. No one could prove what P.Y. Lin was saying. In fact, be very honest with you, up until the time we started to build the damn thing, we weren't sure you could build it. We would do some design work. We would have a meeting with them, Turner Construction Company out of New York City. Right. And they would react to our design and say, you know, we can build that. But if you want to accomplish this, here's another way we could build it much more easily if we did it this other way. What do you think? So we began to collaborate. It's again, back to the building guilds about what's the best way to build a wall out of stone or brick? What's the best way to build this Moscone Convention Center that fits with the design intent? We wanted a light, airy convention hall, but we also wanted the smoothest possible construction cycle. Those arches, were so full of rebar, reinforcing steel. The first arch after it was poured uh, and they stripped the forms had huge rock pockets because the reinforcing steel was so close. I mean, it was almost a steel arch with a little concrete. Rock pockets are construction conditions where there is exposed rock or aggregate and concrete. It can be caused by a number of factors. For example, too much or too little water in the concrete mix, ineffective vibration during placement, or poor mixing in the concrete truck. One of the members of the construction manager organization, Turner, was a salty superintendent who just could not accept no as the answer. And so the general contractor had tried, I'm going to say for two or three weeks to figure out how to do this. And finally, as I say, it was this uh, superintendent who showed them how to do it. And, and effectively, the key was, how do I design a grout that could slip in there 
in between this web of steel. So we actually had to redesign the rebar uh, for the next arch and uh, redesign the, the concrete mix just so we could get the concrete into the arches. And uh, after that, it was successful. That, that first arch plagued us. We ended up actually doing a, a special slurry to fill in the rock pockets, some of which we could not see. But uh, after uh, some x-rays and inspections, we de determined it was okay. In fact, Moscone Center, even though it's underground, is, is, is qualified as an earthquake shelter for citizens in San Francisco if we have another earthquake. Now, water. Water is the enemy of buildings, in case you didn't <laughs> yes. know. I live in Oregon. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we were 20 feet into the water table. When we began excavation, after we hit 20 feet, there was water. So we did dewatering, the contractor did dewatering at the site. We had pumps going day and night, pumping the water out of the hole and running it to the city sewer system. But we weren't going to pump forever. We had, to, we had to build the building like a bathtub. How do you do that? Again, with collaboration with the contractor, not only is the water against the building, but down 20 feet into the ground, the water pressure is intense. How do you keep the water from seeping into that building? We ended up using an expansive clay, bentonized. And uh, I had never imagined that, but the art of it was, how do you get the clay onto the outside of the concrete so that when you backfill, the clay is there and it's, uh, and when the water saturates the clay, the clay swells, becomes impervious, and the water won't go in. Right. Well, we, en we ended up putting the bentonites in cardboard holders with corrugations, with the bentonites in the corrugations then literally taping the cardboard up to the outside of the concrete walls. It worked, except in a few places. How did those places where maybe the bentonites leaked out of the boxes a little bit? Maybe there was a weak spot. So the water was, after we stopped dewatering and backfilled, the water began to leak in in some places. Contractors said no problem. They came in with the drills and, and grouted in those spaces with some kind of hydraulic grout that finally stopped the leaks. And we ended up having a building that was literally a bathtub. The floor of the building is average of six feet, but under the arches, it's 17 feet thick concrete. I think it took us three days of continuous pour to pour that foundation. Wow. It was a symphony. We used every, the resources of every concrete uh, maker in the Bay Area getting those trucks lined up. We had the police involved with us to help clear the traffic from that area so the trucks could stack up and so on. It was something to behold. And the guys down in the in the mat area working that concrete and just imagine pouring that much concrete continuously. They started at one end, one corner, didn't stop until it was all the way to the other end. It was a it was a marvelous thing to see. And our friends, the contractors, figured that out. We knew that we had to have a mat, but I had no idea how to build it. But they worked with us and they said, you know, if you let us do this, we think we can do intermediate uh, sections with temporary shore to, to hold a, a section at a time. Instead of bringing everything up from the bottom, we'll do a section at a time. And as we do the second section, we'll pull the shoring away. So the second and the first section will merge and so on. And it worked like a charm.
So those were a couple of the technical issues. The thing I learned the most was how much I didn't know <laughs> and how much the contractor did know. Uh, we became fast friends and it changed my thinking about the contractor is not my enemy. The contractor is my friend and collaborator. If there's any one lesson I want anybody to have today, it's that. Well, and I'm interested in talking about that relationship a little bit more because while integrated project delivery is becoming more prevalent, it is still mostly only used on super, super large projects because people don't want to spend the money to have all those people on board early. It seems to me that that kind of model is it either goes really well or it doesn't. There's not a whole lot of middle ground. As far as kind of a lessons learned in your experience of having the contractor involved from early design, what worked and what did you learn in that process at that time that you would have done differently the next time you worked with a contractor on board earlier? That is an excellent question. It's, and it's for me, it's very clear and simple. We were thrown together with the contractor. We had no, we didn't get to select our partner. We were told, here's Turner Construction, here's HOK, you boys and girls be, become partners. So fortunately, we got lucky in that we ended up liking each other. In fact, we socialized together. And some of these people are still my friends to this day. But what if it didn't work? What if we didn't like each other? What then? So my, in my mind, the best way is not for the owner to say, Turner and HOK are, are so-and-so and so-and-so, you, you pair up, is for the architect and the, and the contractor who have had a good working relationship on a design-build project, maybe, for them to say, you know, why don't we just sit down over a cup of coffee and talk about, would we ever decide, would we ever trust each other enough to partner up and going after a design build project. And uh, it all is based on trust and trust is based on no computer models or anything else, human relationships. Do I trust you? Do you trust me? If there are issues, and I'll tell you, Sharice, we had them. I was the project manager for HOK. And when one of my people complained about something that the contractor was doing that they thought was wrong, I called my equivalent at Turner and we sat down together, usually over a cup of coffee. Sometimes it was just a phone call and said, okay, what's going on? And we didn't pull any punches with each other, but we knew that we had to fix things because if we didn't, the project, which was under a microscope by the city and by these groups that wanted to see if they could stop us would fail and we couldn't let the project fail. So the project success was bigger than either firm. But if I had to do it over again, I would have wanted to pick the contractor as my partner and have them select us as well. If you have trust with your architect and your, your contractor, I think the ultimate for our industry is for teams of design and build to get so good at this that they share the risk together. It's shared risk is a far better far more manageable to share risk and figure stuff out together than it is to do it in our own silos. 
I totally agree that if our contracts were built that way, our contracts and our general conditions and all of those things from a shared risk model, it would it would it would just naturally have a more collaborative relationship because you have the same, you know, the same amount of skin in the game. And Sharice, our contracts are that way because back in 1850 or so, 1870, the AIA was formed and the AGC a few years after. And we began to lobby state legislatures to allow us to insert language into contracts that read as it does. And even today, you can you can bring up the AIA or go online and get a contract, and it'll tell you all this stuff that you do to protect yourself. What it doesn't do is tell you how to work with a contractor. So the, the legal legacy of working separately is still with us. We have to find ways to overcome that. And uh, it takes more work. But the rewards are enormous if you're able to do this. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm hoping we seem to be a little slow in this industry to change, which as we're um, running low on time, a final question for you. If you were the king of the world, yeah. you have a project, you have complete control from beginning to end of everything. What top three fundamental changes or corrections of things we do in our industry right now would you do differently if nobody could stop you? What would you do that we don't do now? That's a great question. The first thing that I would do is everybody's on one team. The contractor, the subs, even the suppliers, and the architect and the consultants, the engineers, one team. And uh, the, the, the builders help the designers during design and the designers help the builders during construction. That's the first thing. A collaborative teamwork environment. That's the biggest step. Second, I would leverage the value of the computer by, and you have to work at this, getting the computer to take on more of the burden of coordination and checking and get the architects to do more designing, more thoughtful designing, not just doodling with wiggly forms and stuff really thoughtful designing. And um, the last is share the risk, share the risk with your team. Don't get siloed up, share the risk across between design and build. I guarantee you shared risk, it's risk well managed. There should be a shared reward. But again, if I were the czar or the king, I would, I would say as the owner of my new building that's being designed by this great team, if you achieve the following three goals, you collaborate, you focus on good design, and you let the computer do these good things. If you meet that and you meet my budget, there's a bonus in it for everybody on this team, a shared reward. I love that idea. Who doesn't like a bonus? <laughs> you incentivize. You incentivize good behavior with money. And money is, money is very useful. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish we had about four or five more hours. <laughs> that we could talk about a whole bunch of other things, but we don't. But I really appreciate you um, gracing me with your presence today. And I hope we, we get to chat again offline about more things. I think we have a lot in common. And yes, indeed. I've enjoyed it very much. And I think you've, you've asked some great questions. And I think we've had a wonderful dialogue. I'm excited about it. And uh, I know that people in your audience have gotten some, some value from it. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, 
Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.